You're listening to The Close-Up, the Film Society of Lincoln Center's podcast series. This is Brian Brooks. And this is Eugene Hernandez. Preceding this year's New York Film Festival, the Film Society paid tribute to one of America's cinema's most audacious and controversial auteurs. Our series... 50 Years of John Waters, How Much Can You Take, covered everything from the director's rare short films to his well-known classics. In addition, we were thrilled to present a series curated by John Waters himself called Movies I'm Jealous I Didn't Make. His selections included David Cronenberg's Crash and James Wong's Final Destination. Before we kicked off the retrospective, I sat down with John at his New York City apartment to discuss his life and career. Our conversation ranged from his early days as an underground filmmaker to his relationship with Divine and his other influences. So let's go to that conversation. I started by asking John how he has seen filmmaking change over the past 50 years. Well, filmmaking in the last 50 years, how it changed, I can only speak from my perspective, really. And when I made my first 8mm film, Hag in a Black Leather Jacket, I didn't know what editing was. Every shot that I shot is the movie. It was beyond dogma. <laughs> it was, there was no outtakes. Um, I didn't know how to do anything. I didn't go to school. The, the Teamsters later helped me, but mostly the guy at the film lab helped me to, to how to shoot it and everything. I got a you know an eight millimeter camera. This before Super 8. They didn't even have Super 8 when I started. So it changed to that. And I started making underground movies, and my last movie was a Hollywood movie. It was a New Line release, um, a dirty shame, but it was a Hollywood underground movie. I think I ended up kind of the same over the years in both my career. How filmmaking has changed is different completely. The studios today are looking for me at 20 years old. They're not looking for me at 68. So let's specifically talk for a minute about Hag in a Black Leather Jacket yeah. and why you picked up a camera. Tell us, I mean, uh, were, you, you, were you thinking about movies as a career? Were you thinking about them as a creative expression? Why, 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 why a Super 8 camera? In Not Super 8. 8 millimeter, camera. black and white, hag in a black leather jacket. Ah, my grandmother gave me a movie camera. Before that, I had been a puppeteer for children's birthday parties. So I had a showbiz career. I had three shows a week for 25 each. That was a lot in the 50s. So I just wanted, here's why I wanted to make underground movies, because of Jonas Mikas. Because I read his column, Movie Journal, in the um, Village Voice every week. I read Variety when I was 14. Yeah, I wanted to have it my career. Did I ever think it would end up as far as it did? No, I just wanted to make a hit underground movie. But then the underground movie scene was totally New York. They were snobby. They didn't want to see somebody from Baltimore that made a movie. It was totally New York based and the whole underground scene was here. But I would run away and come to New York and go to the Gate Theater, the Bridge Theater, the Filmmakers Cooperative and see all those movies. The Kuchar Brothers, Andy Warhol, Kenneth Anger. And that's the, the gang I wanted to join but I was too young you know and I, I lived in Lutherville Maryland it was a different different scene what did your well first of all what did your family think you said your grandmother gave you a camera what did your parents think of this idea of you making movies and then what do your friends think when you told them that you were gonna make a movie? well my first movie only Mary Vivian Pierce is in it. She's the only dreamlander that was in every single movie I ever made. It's mostly my high school friends who are 
I, I liked them dearly, but they were bad actors. They look right in the camera and everything. My mother was pissed because we filmed it on the roof of her parents' house and used her wedding dress, which I got out of storage and didn't tell her. But it was a Ku Klux Klan guy marrying a white girl and a black guy. And, um, which is not so far from Hairspray in a way. And we shot it on the roof of the house. My mother and father were supportive and horrified. I think that's the best way to put it. Through my whole career. You know, at a dirty shame. My father said, it was funny. I hope I never see it again. And, and one year, my, my mother said, oh, God, what's this one about? And I'd tell her, and she'd go, oh, maybe we'll die first. So they had, I got my sense of humor for them. But certainly, they were not arty. They were, I was no red diaper baby. Let's put it that way. But they were supportive. And my father paid for those early movies. And I paid him back for every one of them with interest. And when he died, I found that he had saved the little handwritten things I sent every week, which was very touching to me. But he, was, he never saw Pink Flamingos. He, was, he knew enough about it. And I, people said, why wouldn't you let your parents in? That's torture. That's parents' abuse. What parent would be proud their son made pink flamingos? Really? I mean, in people's divine parents, how liberal can you be? You're in drag eating dog shit. You know, that's, Dr. Spock didn't tell you what to do in a baby book for that. I get why his parents were uptight. That was the point. What does this uh, retrospective mean to you? What does Lincoln Center mean to you? Are you kidding? I'm filthy and respectable, finally. And uh, the Lincoln Center tribute to me, as I said, what better will I get even after I'm dead? That's it. There's not going to be anything better. So I'm so happy I'm alive. It's like being able to attend your own funeral and hearing the eulogy. It's a great honor, and I'm never going to get anything better than that. What could be better? I'm not going to win the Oscar. So I, I think um, it's incredibly, um, I'm incredibly honored by it. I went to the Lincoln Center a lot. I went to the film festival. I saw all that stuff. So to be there, it's a long way from Lutherville, Maryland, let's say. I'm so interested in the fact that you had these films kind of just stored away for what purpose? Did you imagine that you would pull them down and show them someday? Did you ever think about uh, what you would do with these movies? It seems like you sort of had them close to you, but you didn't really, you weren't really engaging with well, the, the really early movies, I mean, Hagen and Black Leather Jacket was only shown once. There's a reason for that. I mean, it's, I guess, historically good to view. Do I think it's a great film? No. Warhol said something great. He said, my films are more fun to talk about than see. And, and this might be true in some of these movies, too. But you do get... Dreamland Studios was my bedroom at my parents' house for the first two movies. I lived at home still. Divine lived up the street with his parents. Uh, so... Yes, I thought, I know it was in, I have a film archive at Wesleyan Film Archive where all my stuff goes. So it was eventually going to go somewhere, definitely. And I, I kept them, and I kept them not in great. I mean, then at my attic in Baltimore is the not perfect storage for film. But those early films, the, the stock was really strong and stuff. They, it's not like the Hollywood movies that are all fading. These didn't. So I always said that technically, people said, you know, young people today, they like to watch a movie on their cell phone. Good, because my movies, the bigger they are, the worse they look. So, so I'm for watching it that big, the early ones. What do you think about the current debate about the death of film? Do you think film is dead, dying? No, people are always going to want it, but how they watch it could be very different. You know, some home screens now, home theaters, are nicer than the theaters that show art films. So it's hard to complain about it. But no, I don't think it's dead, but TV is maybe better sometimes than some of the independent films that are out today. It's certainly way more people see it, and it's uh, it pays more. And uh, 
I think the independent film, if you go today to see them, a lot of them, no one is under 50 years old in the audience, which is shocking, kind of, because I always, I still go to the movies all the time. I pay to go to the movies. I think that's the best thing you can do if you have a friend, pay to see their movie opening night on Friday, because that is the whole, the success of the movie is decided that night financially. So um, I don't think it's dying. People are going to always want to go to movies. They're going to have that experience. But how they see it is definitely going to change. Now the theaters are trying to become like the first class airplane where you have seats that you go to sleep. You know, you don't want to make it too comfortable in seats that go completely back and you can put your feet up like the, like, you know, first class to Europe, those kind of seats. And, you know, it's a tough thing because anybody falls asleep. You'd fall asleep in the movie Speed sitting in one of those seats. A memory of an early movie that you saw. What was the most, a movie that kind of influenced you that you still remember having that? Certainly Scorpio Rising, I think I saw that movie, and I, or the Genet movie, you know, or Benuel, or Bergman. I think Bergman is the one, because he had vomit before anybody. He's the puke king. He always had vomit in his movies, and I love Bergman. I even like Liv Ullman's fake Bergman movies that she directed. Um, she was good as Bergman. She took over his spirit. So, Brink of Life. That's the movie that takes place in a maternity ward. That, I love that movie. I always saw them by myself. I take Divine. He hated them. Can't we see an Elizabeth Taylor movie? I'm the only person, probably, I would take Divine on LSD to see Bergman movies. We saw Hour of the Wolf on Acid together. Other filmmakers that made an imprint on you? Certainly, Russ Meyer was a huge influence in the beginning. I mean, I saw Wild Gals of the Naked West. I saw all the, there was a theater in Baltimore called The Rex that showed sexploitation movies and nudist camp movies and the movies that were condemned by the Catholic Church and they fought the censor board. But they would take a Bergman movie like Monica and cut out everything and just leave the scene with the tits in and retitle it The Sins of Monica. So I first saw Bergman as a dirty movie. In Baltimore. So those movies, I saw sexploitation movies, drive-in with Herschel Gordon Lewis and the Gore movies, but I was at the same time seeing Bergman and Fellini was a huge influence on all of us. Juliet of the Spirits, we were all on acid watching that, you know, so, um, and Sarah Gina in Eight and a Half or however you pronounce her name, is very Edith Massey to me. I think she led very much to the Edith and Divine characters. So we were always seeing art movies at the same time, but nobody saw art and trash together and that's what I ended up making is exploitation films for art theaters because they didn't work in the grindhouse. We tried. They hated them because they're ironic. Nobody saw early Russ Meyer movies because they thought they were funny. They were jerking off to them. Nobody ever jerked off to my movies unless you're in real trouble. Although, one time did call, someone called me up a stranger and I didn't pick up and they left on the answer machine and I didn't have a time limit. She was jerking off through the whole Pink Flamingos and talking what it was like while she watched Pink Flamingos jerking off. I should have saved that. You could have used it at Lincoln Center. I have to ask you about Bob Shea, Midnight Movie. Yes. And tell us about that, that moment in your career and what that meant for you. Well, Bob Shea, more than anybody, is the most important person in my career because um, I sent him multiple... Ma I always liked what they distributed to me because they did exploitation and art at the same time. Right in the beginning. They had three movies when I went to them first and I sent them multiple maniacs and Bob wrote, come back when you have something more polished but we're interested. And if you can imagine, Pink Flamingos was that. 
And we sent him pink flamingos, and his letter said, come to New York, but don't bring your friends. And I had a long, long run with Bob. You know, he greenlit my movies. He understood them. I went all over the world with Bob and his wife and his family. Sarah Risher at New Line had a huge part of, of getting hairspray made. Um, so um, he was a mentor to me, and, and um, I grew up with him. And through all the films, he, he paid back to Dirty Shame, the last one. Um, who else would have okayed a reshoot of an end where there's the facial for the audience on the lens that we had to reach. Let's have a more commercial ending after we tested it, where Johnny rises and his head explodes like a penis and cum covers the camera and that's the end. He greenlit that. So, correctly, correctly. But I wasn't afraid to tell Bob my ideas. Bob went everywhere. Bob went to hellfire with us. And his wife, they all went to, they went, Bob was an open-minded man. And um, I went all over the world with him. And um, uh, he, I salute him. He really was a huge, huge part of my career. Uh, person you most admire? Oh God, the person I most admire. That's a tough one. Um, I think my parents, in some way, it took really a long time to realize that I was not an easy child. I was born six weeks too early, so right in the beginning there were trouble. And I was overly baptized. That's what happened to me. <laughs> Because I was born so early, they baptize you every minute. So I didn't have any original sin left. That's what caused my mental illness. Um, okay, just a couple more. Do you, do you have a motto? If so, what is it? A motto I tell all young filmmakers is a no is free. Show business is rejection. Just keep asking for what you want. And it doesn't cost anything if people say no. And one day, somebody will say yes. What is subversive today in cinema? Well, what's subversive today in cinema is getting a movie made. <laughs> if you can get a movie made, that's really uh, hard. But I always say I want a kid to make a movie that gets an NC-17 rating that has no sex or violence. That'll be the most devious movie ever made. And I don't know what that movie could be but somebody has to make it. Um, tell us about pre-Divine, Divine. You guys met in high school? I met, we didn't go, to the, Divine and I did not go to the same high school. Divine moved with his parents about six houses away from mine when we were about 17. And I met him through a girl that lived across the street named Carol, who looked very much like Dawn Davenport. And they used to play poker and gamble with pimple medicine that they both used to wear as lipstick. And uh, I used to see Divine waiting for the school bus, and he was not flamboyant or anything. He was a nerd, a kind of a Nelly nerd that got beat up every day in school. I mean, talk about bullying. The teachers were horrible to him, too. So, I mean, he used that rage later. And he said, but I, he said he would stand in line when we'd have premieres and see people that beat him up waiting in line. He said it didn't make it better. You know, so I think today, if Devon was alive, he would have had a very famous anti-bullying campaign. And uh, so he never went out of his house till he was 16. He had to do his mother's hair every night. I always said that was hairdo abuse. But then he met David Lockery and marijuana, and that changed his life completely. He never went back. Was it easy to convince him to be in a movie? Was that was it? Oh, Divine, yes, but he Divine didn't believe. I believed in my career, but Divine didn't really until 
I guess really multiple maniacs are pink flamingos because he never thought it was really going to catch on. And at first he said, Why, can I say this stuff? You know, he wasn't like that in real life. Divine never walked around in drag, maybe a few times when he was in high school, but he was certainly not transgendered, had no desire to be a woman and liked playing a man just as much and was trying to get male parts. So, cause he thought he'd get more work. What's about the Diane Linklater story? God, well, that's not even a real movie, really. Uh, it was a camera test, and um, it was right before we started to shoot Multiple Maniacs, and it was the first time I could have lip sync sound, and I had never shot that way. And so we tested it. But the day before, Diane Linklater had jumped out of the apartment, supposedly, and committed suicide, and they made a huge scandal of an anti-drug thing about it. And we kind of liked Diane. We felt she would have been better with us. <laughs> and uh, so, but it was bad. I made the movie and Divine played Diane and it was out before the funeral. It really was an instant movie. And um, I sort of felt bad about doing that until later in the Watergate tapes, maybe about 10 years ago, they keep releasing them. There was a tape that really Diane Linkletter had not taken acid for 10 years. I mean, for a year. And... Leary, I mean, um, Nixon and Art Linkletter conspired to blame it on Leary and the drug culture and to use her death as against drugs, which means to me, and then Art Linkletter put out a record called We Love You, Call Collect, which is in worse taste than my movie. At the end, he's sobbing, call, we love you, call, collect. I thought, oh my God, this is beyond anything I could ever do. So I never thought it was even going to come out, but it did only a couple times and we had a great ad campaign that said the girl the tragedy the gap and divine doesn't even have makeup on he has like a two-day-old beard and a bad wig and my some bathrobe we had around the house and you'll see the dreamlanders were not used to ad-libbing they were used to following endless scripts where they had to do five pages of dialogue in one take without making one mistake so they're not they're not so used to that, and you can tell. Because Divine says, I want to go to commune. He doesn't even know what a commune is. I said, talk about the commune. He said, okay. He didn't know what a commune. Divine was not much of a hippie. But um, in hindsight, I think it led to a quick genre that didn't last. The Coquettes then made a movie called Trisha's Wedding. And that was the day Trisha Nixon got married. It premiered at the exact same time with all drag queens playing Mamie Eisenhower, Trisha Nixon, the whole guest. And then I guess the Karen Carpenter story in a way was that, but it wasn't instant. It didn't come out right to, as a live event. And that genre then died. But today that genre could really be done because of all the cell phone, everything people have. Now you can make a movie that day and have it online that night, really. So the time for instant movies is back, I think. Every day somebody should do the New York Post headline and make a movie of that every single day. Pecker's my nice movie. Pecker's my kindest movie. It's the one that in Japan, it was a, really a hit in Japan because they love Edward Furlong. They like all hairless, adronymous, adronymous, what's the word? <laughs> Androgynous men. In Japan, they love that. Um, Sylvester Stallone is the most repulsive person they could ever think of. But Leo, oh, they love a hairless kind of, you know. And um, so they love Eddie Furlong's a huge star there. And we got a big advance from Japan because of it and um, the best review we got there said it was a Disney film for perverts <laughs> which is a good review 
Um, it wasn't about me, really. A lot of people thought Pecker was like uh, my story, but it wasn't because I was not naive. I read Variety. I was hoping New York would notice me. But a little of it was true because once you make a movie and it's a hit, people that are not in show, they just think you're rich. They don't know that you had a movie that played at midnight where the mission was two dollars and so but they just assume you're rich so that kind of did happen a little bit to me and um, so a little bit is Pecker but I got it really when I did the Pecker movie it was like thinking of the people Diane Arbus photoed or Nan Golden photoed how did they feel when their pictures of them with a hangover sell for like two hundred thousand dollars at auction later it's touchy you know but nobody knew that was gonna happen so I think it was um, the curse of success, which I certainly had never felt, but that I could understand where Pecker would. And I had to go in front of the MPAA. They said we couldn't use the title. And I gave, I thought, a pretty good speech, because I've always wanted to be a lawyer, where I said things like, what angry child ever carves the word Pecker in his decks? No sexist men say, suck my Pecker to a woman. Uh, you know, and then I thought, how about Free Willy? You allowed that in London. Uh, how about Shaft? And I named all these movies, and they were just looking at me. And then they said, okay. <laughs> Where did the idea for Roman Candles come from? Roman Candles totally influenced by Warhol, the Chelsea Girls. It had just come out, and so they had two, so I had three. But pitiful, because we're trying to be debauched. I live in my bedroom in Lutherville, Maryland. Um, and uh, one of my friends that I got expelled from NYU with is in it shooting up. We had shooting up, because you know all that stuff was in the Warhol movies. But but really, the Warhol movies still are unheralded. I think one day that they will be thought of as important when every home eventually has video art in the walls like where it would be a common thing and you see those movies that's when those movies are going to be end up being worth as much as his artwork hairspray the only movie that i accidentally had an obsession that didn't scare people um i never thought hairspray was going to be I never sat down and said, let's write a commercial hit. Let's, when Hairspray got a PG rating, I thought my career was over. And then New Line actually said, why don't you put in the word shit or something so we get a PG-13? I said, no, let's try to get a G. That would even be more shocking. Um, so it's the movie, I think, that is, if I ever made a movie that was devious, it's that. Because it crossed over. In every high school in America, they're doing Hairspray now, which is two men singing a love song to each other, a movie that encouraged your white teenage daughter to date black guys. But no one notices that that's the message. They embrace it, and I somehow snuck that over. Where if you're watching Pink Flamingos and you come to see Pink, I'm preaching to the converted there. <laughs> I mean, the people that like that movie are already insane. But, but this is a sneak attack, Hairspray. And um, so it was based on a TV show that was only in Baltimore called The Buddy Dean Show that actually went off the air because they couldn't uh, integrate it. I gave it a much happier ending than what really happened because all the kids on the show said it's fine to integrate, but their parents wouldn't allow that. And I still say, if young people slow dance, which they don't today, but if there was a show today of teenagers slow dancing when they're 14 years old, black and white together would still make people uptight. So I don't think it's changed that much completely. Um, and as Mary Lou, which was really my favorite buddy Deaner, who Amber's a little bit based on, but in real life her 
Amber's mother was Edna in real life, so I, I switched it all around. But she said to me, a black girl could have gotten on easier than a fat girl would. She said, none ever applied, never even ever came to try to be on it. So things have changed, and I think I did help fat girls because when we were casting Hairspray, only about five girls showed up. Thank God one of them was Ricky Lake. But after Hairspray, hundreds showed up for Crybaby when we were casting. So I think, and now all fat girls got to look. They know they'll kick your ass if you call them tubelard. You know, that doesn't happen anymore, I don't think. Fat girls are now angry, I'll kick your ass, and they got a good look. Usually Betty Page, tattoos, and they're at horror conventions. What, when you think about Female Trouble, it's one of the movies that so many people... Um... <laughs> equate, especially with the earlier part of your career. So many people, I think, discovered you. you know. But Female Trouble was not successful when it came out. Um, it followed Pink Flamingos, and people, including Variety, they said it's not as... It did not get the initial reaction that it has today, and I think it's probably the most loved Divine movie today from my fans. It's very loud. I said, we should, in, we should now put that movie out again and sense around. So when Mink's screaming, the rafters shake like they did in Roller Coaster and Earthquake, I want to bring back sense around with female trouble. Because everyone shouts in it through the whole movie. And that was my direction. I don't do that today. I think it was influenced by the performance of um, Tora Satana in Faster Pussycat. If you watch that movie, she shouts every line in a monotone. And I think we watched that movie every night. We would go and <laughs> get high and watch that every night at the drive-in. So um, I think that's the trickle-down effect of why that happened. Or plus, I always had such bad sound that I wanted to make sure people could hear it. So everyone's yelled through the entire movie. <laughs> Dirty Shame. Well, I wanted to make a sexploitation movie. Each one of my movies is a genre. I mean, Pink Flamingos was a midnight movie. Female Trouble was a crime biography. Hairspray, a dance movie. Crybaby, a musical. Serial Mom, a true crime one. A Dirty Shame, a sexploitation movie. And, um... We don't have them anymore. I grew up on sexploitation. You know, I went to court so you could see Bush. Now young people don't even have Bush. So, and what gay people had to do, they had to suffer through. First women's tits, then women's ass, then women's vagina. Finally then, as the censorship fell, you saw a man's ass. And to see a dick, that took decades of court fights. And Johnny Knoxville and Tracy Ullman, I, I love their performance in it. Johnny Knoxville, to me, his movies have the real, the closest in spirit, I think, to any, to Pink Flamingos. I think what Johnny's movie does. The difference is Johnny's make millions and mine made hundreds. Serial Mom is, I think, one of my best. It's the only movie where we had enough money. Really. We had $13 million to make it. Um, I love Kathleen's performance in it. I think she's great. Um, it sort of forecast OJ because this came out before OJ and it hadn't happened. But there's scenes in it that are weirdly very much like what happened in that case. Um, so I did teach in prison. I used to go to, there's a courtroom scene in half my movies it feels like. Uh, so, um, and if I wasn't a filmmaker I'd be a defense lawyer for the worst people that aren't sorry and would do it again. 
Well, eat your makeup. You know, Divine plays Jackie Kennedy in it, which, um, and we had the Kennedy assassination. It was only a few years after it happened, and it was filmed on my poor parents' street, and the people were horrified. They really didn't think it was funny. I entered it in a film festival in Maryland then, and they stopped it halfway through and called it pernicious, which I love that word. And I've never forgotten that word. It was a good vocabulary lesson. And then called the IRS to report me that I was charging money at a church screening. That's how much they hated it at this film festival. That's how it was received. But Divine in real life wanted to be Liz Taylor, not Jackie Kennedy. But the real star of the movie and Roman Candles was Malcolm Soule, who was my star before Divine, who was a female female impersonator, a beatnik goddess, really. And uh, Divine was scared of her. We were all looked up to her. She was so great. And, and if you look what she looked like in those movies, that's how she looked every day of her life. She went out on the street like that, which was really radical in 1964, I promise you. You do so many things now, John. You make movies, you write, you have an art career. Um, how do you think people will remember you? How do you want to be remembered? I guess I'd like to be remembered most as a writer because all the careers I have, I write. I've only made movies I write. I write my books. My photograph series I do are thought up before, so they're conceptual in a way they're written. My spoken word act is written. So I guess that's what I do consistently the most. Pink Flamingos will be in the first paragraph of my obituary, no matter what else. I would say if I discover the cure of cancer tomorrow, Pink Flamingos will come ahead of that. And it's not my best movie, but it worked. It's still playing, and it didn't get mellow in those cans. And um, it's probably even more politically incorrect today, except the only thing that's dated is it's shocking that lesbians would buy children. <laughs> that's in that movie. Now lesbians have more children than Catholics. So that's changed. But still, they don't impregnate them and sell the babies. You know, so that still has a little bit of an edge left. Welcome back to the close-up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center. This is Brian Brooks. To kick off our John Waters retrospective, we screened the director's 1974 black comedy, Female Trouble. The star of Pink Flamingos is here again. It's divine. She's got balls, and she's got female trouble. I'm a thief and a shit kicker, and uh, I'd like to be famous. Dawn Davenport is eating a meatball sandwich right out in class. Here she is, divine as Dawn Davenport, a feisty young high school girl. My parents are going to be real sorry if I don't get them cha-cha heels. Nice girls don't wear cha-cha heels. Female Trouble stars John Waters' frequent collaborator, Divine, as Dawn Davenport, a spoiled schoolgirl who runs away from home in search of fame. After the screening, John joined film critic Jay Hoberman for a lively discussion about the film and his career in general. So let's listen to the live conversation between Jay Hoberman and John Waters at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Thank you. Whoa, 40 years ago, exactly that was. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen it for about... Uh, 30 years, and uh, I'm kind of knocked out. Well, yeah, this is I, I don't know. When you look at old films that you've made, all you see is, like, mistakes and stuff sometimes. But it's uh, good to hear it with an audience. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, John, you write the bestsellers. You uh, do uh, art shows. You're a photographer. And the, uh, uh, 
But I don't have any hobbies. Don't have any hobbies. <laughs> but, you know, you, you made this, and I'm, uh, I'm thinking that, um, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's Mark Twain, there's uh, Max Sennett, uh, Joan Rivers, and, and you. Thank you. That's very sweet. You know, when I when I introduced Serial Mom, Joan Rivers is in Serial Mom, and she we have one show. She said this is the lowest form of show business I've ever been in because I wasn't even there when we filmed her scene, which is her just saying serial hags, women who love men who mutilate. That was the only thing she had to say. But I didn't even go there, and we did it without me. And so she was always supportive. She had Divine on the show. She had she was supportive from the very beginning. Yeah, well, I think that this is also, uh, uh, to me, this is Divine's greatest performance. And, um, uh, well, is this, is this the only uh, movie where, where Divine played uh, a man? No, Divine played a man in Hairspray. He plays the racist oh, owner right. of the... And, he, and Divine liked playing men. Yeah. He, in Mondo Trasha, you can see somebody moons very, Mary Vivian Pierce, who, by the way, just sent a text. She lives in Nicaragua oh. saying hello to everybody. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and he sticks his head out the window as kind of a greaser in it. So yeah. Divine liked playing men, too. Yeah. Divine, yeah. Divine could play both. He would have liked to play the dog in Pink Flamingos. He would <laughs> yeah. play every scene, really. Well, he's, uh, yeah. I mean, he, uh, he, he, he tears up the screen. Here, how much did he have to do with... Uh, um, uh, writing his point, you know, his lines created. He didn't. His uh, no, I'm not. I'm in the writers' guild. Yeah. I'm against improvisation. Uh -huh. um, every movie, I, I, improvisation is like a facelift. If you notice, it's bad. Uh -huh. And I see a lot of movies today. I think, oh come on, where they go on for 20 minutes improvising. Uh -huh. I know that's not in the script, and the directors like that. I personally don't. Uh -huh. um, I don't have time. You know, I got to make the film. Uh, uh -huh. So Divine did not. We rehearsed these movies. Uh, uh -huh. How anybody could say they were amateurs, they had to memorize 20 pages yeah. of dialogue in one. I don't know if some of the big movie stars can do that. Well, some can. But uh, he, he, um, he didn't really uh, write the dialogue. But at the yeah. same way, I wrote it for him. Yeah. I mean, it was the only movie where I really wrote the part for the lead for him. And then one he, once, uh, he, when he was not in Desperate Living, and yeah. Sue Lowe stepped in and played the part that Mole that he was going to play, um, I realized that I couldn't from then on write a part for one character because they might not be available. So, mm -hmm. um, but this one was totally written to be a divine vehicle, mm -hmm. certainly. Yeah, and, and divine was how old then? In 1974, he was born in 46. So how old is that? 24, 28? 28, playing a 16-year-old girl. He did it fairly convincingly, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's, there's nobody else who really could have played this. Uh, uh, I didn't this think of anybody, thank yeah. God. I didn't, I didn't have a short list. No. <laughs> uh -huh. um, it's, but when I, I wasn't thinking so much that um, uh, he wrote his his dialogue, but that the the, the theme of the movie, I mean, the the, the focus on, uh, on 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 celebrity and notoriety and something is is is. I'm wondering if that was was part of his uh, makeup. I mean, something that I think it was concerned. more part of my love for Janae, yeah, you know, yeah. and and all that kind of what I was influenced by. Divine had. Been 
been in jail briefly in that yeah. prison. He hated having to go in there that day carrying the electric chair because he thought I was tricking him yeah. or something. Yeah. And the, the prisoners in there, we have the gas chamber, yeah. so they saw that. They thought, oh, great. When, and the warden let us film that in the prison, which is pretty amazing. And <laughs> Divine shaved his head that morning, put on the dress, yeah. and we walked across the prison yard yeah. carrying that electric chair to go in and shoot it. <laughs> Can you imagine some that being allowed today? And so Divine was never certainly a criminal, but Divine lived like a rich person he, even when he had no money. He lived like a movie star. So he would, he would just shoplift and, and write bad checks for things that he should have had, but he didn't at the time. So, um, and, and then, I've always said this, but once the cops came and he had to take a lie detector test and he passed. <laughs> so that is acting. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's great. And you mentioned Genet. Is that Divine gets his name from... Uh, well, you know, Genet. I guess he did. Although yeah. I remember taking that name from Catholicism, what they always told us, what is divine and everything. But it had to be from Genet because I read Genet then and everything. But I don't remember it being from that, but it had to be. Uh, how, does, how does it work uh, coming from Catholicism? Well, because they use that word divine all the time, meaning that it was supernatural, you know, it was of Christ-like was divine, it was like a miracle you couldn't understand and all that kind of thing. So that's where the name came from. It was like a Catholicism word that, that I could twist in a certain way. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's all sorts of uh, things in this uh, um, uh, movie. I don't know if you want to say anything about the dedication. Oh, you know, I apologize for that dedication yeah. in my last book of role yeah. models because Leslie Van Houten is my friend and I, I am very seriously writing to get her out of prison. I did know Charles Watson yeah. and um, I apologize for that because it was very flippant and it was very yeah. punk rock. Manson, when now I look back and Manson really, to me, is, is made the people that did it are victims too. Not as bad, of course, as the people that were murdered, but, mm -hmm. but Leslie is my friend and, yeah. and uh, I look back on it now and, and in a very serious way I try to help her get out and everything. Yeah. So I did apologize that for role models. Yes, you do things when you're young, um, the crazy stuff, and I get why I did it at the time. The crime thing had happened. I had been to the Manson trial. It was hugely influential, mostly on yeah. Pink Flamingos, though, because um, I, I went... And, and in Multiple Maniacs, it's, it's amazing, but we took credit for the murders when they hadn't yeah. caught yeah. Manson. Yeah. What was I thinking, you know? So, um, yeah, there was a history of that, certainly, in, in the movies, yeah. yes. Well, I th thought um, uh, at, the, at the time, um, and, and even now, that one of the most interesting things about your films is that they were um, uh, made for a certain audience. I mean, you were, you were on the radio the other day, and, and um, uh, the, the interviewer said that, oh, the movie was made to, made to, to uh, you know, shock the squares or put off the squares, but that wasn't even... No, it was to shock hippies. To shock yeah. hippies. I yeah. mean, it's it, the, the, the fact that, you know, that, that there was this uh, notion of hippie tolerance <laughs> that really gets pushed to the limit in these films. But is, we were hippies, something. sort yeah. of. Sort yeah. of. We were more yippies. You know, yeah. that was what yeah. I believed in at the time, you know, like yeah. revolution, rip off the man. But I was a fourth line. I never got hit by the cops. I knew when to run. Uh, <laughs> Divine certainly was not. He was yeah. hardly a hippie. Yeah. He tried to be uh, a mod, but it mm -hmm. didn't really work. But yeah. his, his dad used to always say to him, why don't you go out there, go to those demonstrations and stuff. And Divine just wanted to go see Elizabeth Taylor movies, yeah. really. Yeah. You know? who, who 
you came up with Divine's uh, uh, look at the end? The mobile? Well, I would say that I did, but also Van Smith had a huge, huge uh, influence. Who, who did Divine's makeup and hair yeah. and the costumes for all my movies yeah. and the makeup. And, um, and it was Van, really. I did tell him once to shave the hair back. And, but later, that image of Divine with the Mohawk became on punk rock t-shirts yeah. everywhere before, any, before Female Trouble had even played in London. Yeah. So certainly that image was appropriated as, as a punk rock look, which it certainly was a good look. Yeah. yeah. But that was real. You know, none of these people had wigs on or anything. They, they yeah. had to go out of the house. Yeah. I mean, when we made Pink Flamingos, you forget that Mink Stoll and David Lockery had, you know, blue and red hair. Today, yeah. you can buy that in the Rite Aid, yeah. that dye. Then you got stones thrown at you. You couldn't even go out if you look like that. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of, could, could you explain the title, Pink Flamingos? Well, I wanted to give a really plain title to a movie that was going to be extreme. I didn't want the title to be sensational. Mm -hmm. And uh, Pink Flamingos, well, because there is a Pink Flamingo on the front lawn. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of, at the time, a symbol of a trailer park and blue-collar living and everything. The same way Jeff Koons did Gazing Balls recently. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. it, it came from the same thing. So I wanted to have a name that was not so sensational since everything else in the movie kind of was. You know, uh, uh, something that I noticed, and uh, um, actually in uh, um, uh, The Outer Cape, a, a part mm -hmm. of the world you, 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 you know well, is a, a uh, resurgence of, of, of pink flamingos. On but I'm against them now. Now, okay. Yeah. Here's why. So they became hipster. I'm, a, I'm yeah. for them if you're yeah. 75 years old and you have the <laughs> plaster kind, the original that you've had since the 40s. I'm yeah. against it if you're a yippie, a yuppie, very different, a yuppie with a plastic one on in your front lawn to mock blue-collar yeah. people. Yes, I'm against them now. And I think they've become kind of wearisome you know now they're a hipster kind of thing and then yeah. some people have hundreds of them on their front lawn yeah. i think it's not funny yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. okay i mean i don't so think they should be imprisoned or anything <laughs> get the chair it's just they came too late yeah yeah <laughs> yeah well and wishing wells that's another thing i have a scene in female trouble i love when she says i'll throw a goddamn penny in a wishing well make a wish <laughs> because a lot of people had wishing wells on their front yard and i always find that a hilarious they could just run out and throw a coin in the wishing well <laughs> well i'd say it was it was very nice to see this knowing that uh, uh, just across the street fashion week is yeah but i'm all for on. fashion week no, no, yeah, it, yeah maybe this could have been Know, part of that well I, I i think fashion week's exciting you know it's fun and it's extreme and uh i was the host for the fashion oscars this year which was exciting uh -huh. and i gave a speech about how we should make fashion cost more it's too cheap <laughs> uh, you really are a folk hero uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> when when you were were uh, hitchhiking for yeah. you for your book i mean did a lot of people recognize you some did most drove by me and thought could that be john waters and then a lot of people uh -huh. most people thought i was homeless and tried to give me money because uh. <laughs> you know a 68 i was 66 then 66 year old man standing on the highway with a sign people don't even know what hitchhiking is anymore yeah. I, I was hitchhiking once in provincetown and a family picked us up and the little kids like staring at me in the back seat <laughs> like it's like, Dad, why is this man in the car? Who is he? Why did you stop? They don't even know what it is. Yeah, I mean, uh, did you hitchhike a lot back in the day? Oh, yeah, completely. I mean, my type is the hitchhiker with a birthmark in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> so, um, 
thought he was kind of cute. Let's talk a little bit about uh, underground movies because uh, um, I think that it's it's, it's safe to say that that, that when you started, you were kind of a um, second generation underground. Yes, but in Baltimore, because, you know, Andy and the Coochie Brothers were all older than me. Andy was two decades before Mm -hmm. me, but certainly when I started reading about underground movies was a perfect timing, because I was a senior in high school, I read The Village Voice every week, and the brilliant column by Jonas Mika's movie journal, and, and, and Film Culture Magazine, that was my total Bible in Baltimore, that was my only link to it, and I would come to New York and see all those movies, yes. But I was not in that scene, and that scene was not interested in really showing my movies. None of my movies before Pink Flamingos played in New York till after Pink Flamingos yeah. became a hit. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was the same living in Queens reading uh, yeah. about this stuff, but I did well, have... Well, Queens is like Baltimore. <laughs> yeah, kind true. of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's not as picturesque, but... Uh, <laughs> um, the, um, I did have a job, though, I think in the, in the uh, summer of uh, 1970, which was the, the Manson summer. Um, I mean, you know. Like, yeah, it was. Like it was yeah, like, a lot happened that month. Woodstock, Altamont. No, no, this is the, the year. He, the year when after. Manson yeah. was on the cover of Rolling Stone. Oh, right, and so right. On. Yeah. And uh, um, had a job at the filmmakers co-op cleaning yeah. the film. And I did notice that there were these films there, uh, uh, Mondo, Trasho, and uh, Multiple Maniacs, which parenthetically I have to say I, I really do recommend going to uh, uh, to see these movies. I mean, they're really not like anything else. Um, but I didn't, you know, I used to sometimes look at the movies on the rewinds, and um, I don't know, I saw those, I, did, I didn't know what they were, I didn't think of it, and then I saw this movie called The Diane Linkletter Story, and I fell off my stool. I mean, I couldn't imagine who would have had the audacity to make this this movie and and you you withdrew it from circulation for no i withdrew it because it wasn't a real movie and it it happened it was really in bad taste because diane yeah. linkletter is nobody remembers this she was art linkletter's <laughs> daughter and supposedly art linkletter was a right-wing tv host that had a show called kids say the darndest thing where he tricked children into talking about going to the bathroom while the audience howled in laughter and uh he was friends of nixon and 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 he who later made AIDS jokes, by the way, also Art Linkletter. But um, he, uh, his daughter tragically did supposedly commit suicide on LSD. And I had to test the camera for multiple maniacs the day or two it happened. So I said, quick, let's shoot something. And Divine played Diane. But there's no makeup. He has a day-old beard and my bathrobe on, yeah. right? Yeah. And, uh, and then we had it out, I think, before the funeral. And, and the ad was just Diane, the girl, the tragedy, the gap. And um, I... It was bad taste, but uh, later he put out a record called We Love You, Call Collect, where he cried and it said, Diane, come home. Yeah. And then, beyond that, it came out in the last 10 years, and I have the clipping, in the Watergate tapes that are still released, that Diane Linkletter had not had LSD for a year, and Nixon and um, Linkletter con- conspired to blame Timothy Leary and the drug culture for her uh, death. 
So I'm not sorry I made it. And it led to a genre of the Coquettes then made Trisha's yeah. Wedding, yeah. which premiered at the exact moment Trisha Nixon got married with all drag queens playing the parts yeah. of all the characters. And it was at the exact time that she got married. And then that genre died. <laughs> it was just it was a very I, short genre. Right. But if, I, if I'm not mistaken, it showed as a short subject at the Elgin. Oh, yeah, I probably did when they finally later showed multiple maniacs and stuff. Uh, and yeah. The Pink Flamingos. They, yeah, they, yeah. They, they showed it together. Yeah. Um, I didn't exactly withdraw it. It just kind yeah. of faded to my closet. Right. Yeah. You didn't. You didn't use his uh, his uh, uh, record for the soundtrack. I maybe. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> I mean, it it's not in release. Let's put it that way. Uh -huh. Well, it, it's going to be showing. So yes, in a historical yeah. context. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> It's a rare opportunity. Anyway, when I saw it, I was uh, I was stunned. And do you remember Leslie Trumbull? He used to run the filmmaker. No, he was probably your boss, right? Yeah. 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 And the, this was in a great distribution company. They, the, every person they would say yes to. They never said oh, no yeah, to anybody. Right. And it was a library. But it led then to the Filmmakers Distribution Center where they showed Chelsea Girls and stuff. And that led me to getting Underground Cinema 12, which was a place where I could they rented your film and it could play in one theater at midnight on this mm. chain all around the country of the Art Theater Guild that had porno in the day. But to save themselves in the neighborhood on Saturday night at midnight, they had a, quote, art festival. Mm -hmm. So that was great. And, and multiple maniacs played in there. And, and I would send my dad had the money because I got 90 bucks. It was a dollar a minute. Same with Filmmakers Cooperative, a dollar a minute. Yeah. And all my movies were 90 minutes long, almost every one, because I'm still stuck in that 16 millimeter three reels, beginning, middle, and end. Yeah. There's no such thing as a good long comedy. Have you ever seen a long comedy that's funny? No. <laughs> yeah. No, two reels. Three hour comedy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're also a. Uh, 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 a cineast. I mean, uh, um, you um, uh, see a lot of movies. You know, have ideas about other people's movies and uh, and, and so on. You're, are you going to do a ten best? Oh, for, for art form, form, I do it every year. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I look forward to. Can you? Thank uh, you. No, I can't reveal yet what they are. No, no. Okay. And it's due so early. It's always due in mid-October. So right now I'm like scrambling to get all the screeners and everything of all the movies that are coming up. I want to see in the New York Film Festival. Are you kidding? Uh. Bruno Dumond. Oh, <laughs> Godard in 3D. There's so many uh -huh. great ones coming mm -hmm. up. Yeah. Uh, well, they're also uh, doing here after the festival a... Uh, a series by one of your favorites. Margarita Dura. Yeah. I want to come dress as her in drag and see, you know, <laughs> make an appearance. Uh -huh. What's I met her once, and, and oh, she yeah. was here at the Carnegie Hall Cinema showing her films, and she said, I hope nobody comes. I don't care if you like my movies. <laughs> and I have the... I, I have the Margarita Dura cookbook. There is such a thing. And it says, it's written in her handwriting. You, she, you, you'll never be able to make these. That's what she says in it. So good. <laughs> Had she ever seen any of your films? I didn't ask her. I was too scared of her. No, I'm sure she is not. She was quite grumpy. Yeah. Uh -huh. what, what's your favorite film? The of Truck. The and truck. I presented it here at the French Academy. We had a big audience. And she said it was the biggest crowd the truck ever had. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a good one. I, I like her. I like her films. Yeah. I like her novels. I'm all for I like impenetrable art films that you suffer in. <laughs> yeah. I like a feel-bad movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, there might be some of those. Also... Coming up is a um, uh, at uh, Film Forum. I think at the end of the month is a uh, 
something which seems to me to be long overdue, a, a Tennessee Williams film festival. Did, did, uh, I don't know about that. Are they showing the one that I once met, yeah. Fassbender, with Douglas Sirk in Berlin? Almost yeah. fell to my knees. And Douglas Sirk told me he liked Pink Flamingos. <laughs> but you're kidding. You saw Pink Flamingos. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, yeah. um, they showed me a movie they made of a Tennessee Williams short story yeah. where Fassbender stars in it, Douglas Sirk directed it, and it's, uh, but it's in German, so I don't know what it was. Is that in it? No. No. Have you ever seen that? No, no. I never there is that. such a thing. Yeah, yeah, I didn't. Are you sure that uh, Douglas Sirk wasn't talking about the actual artifact? Pink no, no. Oh, maybe, <laughs> maybe. I don't know. No, he, I think because he was with Fassbender. No, yeah. Fassbender was like in a full slob, no deodorant look, and <laughs> yeah. he was in a prim white linen suit. They couldn't look more of like an unlikely couple. But they, Fassbender, really did bring Douglas Sirk back to the attention of yeah. the cinema yeah. world completely. Yeah. He's responsible for that revival. Yeah, yeah. Um, did you know Tennessee Williams? No, I only saw him once, very much at the end in Key West, and he was looked a little inebriated, and I thought, this is not the time, really. <laughs> yeah. uh, do you have any any favorites of those? I mean, the, well, of, of, I wrote, you know, the introduction to his thing, and my role mm -hmm. models, I wrote a lot about Tennessee Williams. So, of course, he saved my life when I was young. Mm -hmm. And I read him, I thought, there is Bohemia. There's something else beside mm -hmm. this world that, I don't know, this is what I'm looking for, where he hung around with radical sexual people but it was it wasn't just a gay world it was a mixed world and mm -hmm. uh, and he was so smart and he really did save my life as a kid and i used to steal the books cuz they would say see librarian if you <laughs> if a child asked for them <laughs> like one arm remember that one that was so great yeah. you know and that really helped me when i was 8 years old yeah. I know, I know you're a fan of Boom. I think. Yes, Boom. I presented that yeah. at a lot of festivals. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. And I only met Elizabeth Taylor once, and I told her how much I liked it. She said, that's a terrible movie. <laughs> she, th she thought I was making fun of her. But then, then I calmed her down, and, you know, and she looked exactly like Divine. It was at her house. She was serving hot dogs and candy, just like Divine did. <laughs> Yeah. And there's there's an actress I hadn't noticed that. Uh, well, Sally Turner, yeah, yeah, she's I no mean, longer with us, but yeah. she looked like Elizabeth Taylor every day. She got dressed as her, and yeah. and she was a hoarder too. <laughs> and uh, she was great. She's Divine's double in the in the go yeah. fuck yourself scene. You yeah. know, she yeah. plays the man and the woman, yeah. and she's in the beauty parlor. She's getting her hair yeah. done by George yeah. Figgs. Yeah. yeah, I mean. Uh, um, all the neighbors helped. You know, they were all Pat Moran's neighbors. We we filmed a lot of these movies in Chuck Yaten's store. Above the mm -hmm. store was where we filmed Dawn's apartment and everything. Mm -hmm. So it was our hangout, like Reed Street. It's where it was Pat Moran's dog that <laughs> shit the dog ate. You know, we uh -huh. just you, it was a family-run business. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right, you had your own counterculture. You know. Well, it was just, we all hung out in her store, which was called Divine Trash, and it was great. I mean, I remember once a customer, her hair caught on fire from a candle, and Pat just sold her a hat. <laughs> <laughs> we rolled with the punches, you know? Let's <laughs> see if there, what, is there time to uh, take a few questions from the, uh, from the audience? No? One more. What? Oh, one more what? question from you. One or more from, question yeah. from me. Oh, my God. Uh, okay. Make it good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, where were we? We were talking about... Uh, we were talking about thing. Boom, or I, I don't know. We can... Yeah. I mean, well, this is something, this is kind of a... Uh, um, 
sort of a diminuendo, but it was very nice to see uh, uh, Cookie uh, Mueller on the on the screen. I yeah. was she is she also from uh, from Baltimore? She is from Baltimore. Yeah, and I met her. She won the door prize. To, at the screening of Mondo Trasho in Baltimore, the world premiere, she won the door prize, which was dinner for two at the Little Tavern, the worst hamburger shop in town. We didn't even know her. And then yeah. she hooked up us. She played Divine's Daughter in Multiple yeah. Maniacs. And yeah. there is a great yeah. book about Cookie coming yeah. out called Edgewise that comes out in October that has everything in it. Good. It's really good. So Cookie was great. She was a great writer. I wish she had been yeah. a writer well, always. She, she, she had a column. She had a column, yeah. 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 Well, the Medical Association came out against it because she was called Ask Dr. Muller, where she yeah. gave advice that was... <laughs> Was like would make people die and stuff, you know. But it, it was pretty good to read. Just don't follow her advice. I mean, here's a girl that every night when she went out snorted instant coffee. <laughs> but she looked great. Yeah, she did. She had a look. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, all right. Thanks. John. Thank you all. Thank everybody. Thank you. Thank you. The Close-Up is produced by the Film Society of Lincoln Center, a member-supported nonprofit arts organization. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society works to recognize established and emerging filmmakers, support important new work, and enhance awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do, visit filmlink.com, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.com. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>